Well, let us once again go before the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear from Him. Father, we thank You that we have the privilege to open Your Word and that by Your Spirit's power and illumination we can understand it. We understand the natural man does not understand the things of God, and yet we who have the Spirit of God living in us by faith in Jesus Christ, can understand it as we are directed by Your Spirit. Certainly the words are given to us that we might understand language, and yet the heart of Your truth, the principles, the implications of that are directed upon us by Your Spirit. So move upon us now as we study together Help us to walk according to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning as we begin our time in the worship of God's Word and turn in them to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. I've entitled this series, What is a Christian? What is a Christian? We're going to be in this titled series for Sometime, simply because the length of section that we're in is rather large, beginning really in verse 17 and going all the way down through verse 49. Last Lord's Day, we, we took a bit of a detour in our morning worship time as we spent time in Titus chapter 1, installing a new elder in our church, and now we're back to our study of Luke's letter to the friend of his named Theophilus, this Gentile friend, someone who is outside really the nation of Israel, who is a proselyte in many ways, that his friend Theophilus might know with certainty all about what Jesus Christ is all about, all that he had heard, all that he had been taught about Jesus Christ. And last time we were here, we were focusing our attention on verses 12 through 16. 12 through 16, Jesus was once again showing his divine authority in the choosing and the naming of the 12 apostles. Some of us may wonder, how did the apostles become apostles? And here is the very reality right here in just these few short verses. The authority of Jesus Christ on display as he picks and chooses and equips the 12 and names them as apostles. This authority of Jesus Christ has been on the heart of Luke for some time now. Even back, as we saw in chapter 4, even the issue of authority when Satan was attacking Jesus as he went out into the wilderness and was tempted by Jesus. And and Satan even says, I have authority. I will give you my authority. I'll give you authority in a quick and fast way. All you have to do is worship me. Of course, we know Jesus' response was simply to respond from Scripture. I'll do the will of my Father. I'll follow what God would have because this is what His Word says. And then after Jesus begins His ministry, He teaches with divine authority. Back in chapter 4, verse 28, as he is teaching again with his authority, the reaction to his teaching is what happens often when Jesus Christ teaches and makes declarations. The place is filled with anger. 
And chapter 4, verse 32, clearly tells us why it was filled with anger. Because they were astonished at his teaching, because his words possessed authority. He spoke with definitiveness. He spoke as the one who was the highest authority. The response to Jesus was relatively the same all the time. Many of the people who heard Jesus teach were astonished. They were curious, but not changed. They, they liked to hear what he said, but it really had little effect upon them in their own lives. Others were angered by what he was saying, even though they recognized that his words were authoritative, as it says in Luke chapter 4.32. But few actually believed. It was with divine authority that Jesus would heal all of those who were sick and came to him for relief. The Word of God tells us clearly that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so with compassion, He he brought to them the divine proof of who He was. And it was with divine authority that Jesus proved that He is the one who could forgive sin. No one could do that. Even the Pharisees said no one can forgive sin except God alone. And Jesus clearly proves He has the power to forgive sin as He shows them He has the power to heal with miraculous accomplishment in just a moment's time. In other words, salvation comes only one way. The forgiveness of sin comes one way. It comes through divine achievement. It does not come through human achievement. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who is saved by divine achievement. But those, those who refused Jesus Christ were those who were of the religion of human achievement. They were those who believed that they could earn righteousness before God simply by their own activities. In their minds and in their own hearts, Jesus had nothing for them. Jesus had nothing to bring to them. Jesus couldn't do anything for them. They were curious, curious about His power. They, they liked that He could bring some physical relief to their life by whatever means they desired, but as far as their spiritual life, they were all set. They had nothing they needed. Why? Because that's what the religion of human achievement always preaches. A religion of human achievement says life, have it your own way. Have life according to your own exercise, according to your own rules. Do good, sure, do good, at least as you define good. You define it by how you do things. That is good. Just be better than the other guy. Just make sure in your own mind your goodness appears to be at least better than someone else who is behind you or near you. And before God come judgment day, you'll be good to go. That's the gospel of the religion of human achievement. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And we know from our own study that means those who are spiritually lost. Those who are spiritually lost. He came to heal the sick. Not physically sick, although He did that to authenticate the reality of who He was, but Jesus came to heal the spiritually sick. 
the spiritually sick. This is the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. All men are born spiritually lost. All men are born spiritually dead. And therefore, they're eternally terminal. Each one of us, spiritually born into this world, have a terminal illness, and it is an eternal terminal illness if we are unwilling to embrace Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. That's the payment for sin. If you can say you're without sin, then you're good to go before God, but no one is without sin. We are all sinners, and therefore all men have no hope without an eternal cure for their terminal illness. And Jesus is that cure. So this morning, I want to begin to dive into this large portion of this letter that is known at least from its parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6, or 5, 6, and 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. You may find commentators that disagree and say this is a whole other sermon here in Luke's Gospel, but I don't believe that. I think these are the exact same things, albeit Matthew's is longer than what Luke records here. Let me begin to read for us, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 6. And he descended with them, that is with the apostles, and stood on a level place. And there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze to his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. He also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck in your own brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. There is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock, when the flood rose and the torrent burst against that house and could not, it could not shake it because it had been built well. The one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house upon the ground without a foundation. The torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Sobering words from the Lord Jesus Christ. The time of this event takes place in the life of Jesus' ministry. He had already become very well known in the region. Massive crowds are following Him wherever He goes. In light of His ministry, if He was to have that ministry today, there would be flocks and flocks of people going to Him because of His popularity. In fact, by the time you get to Luke chapter 12, it says the crowds are so big that they're just stepping all over one another. So Jesus is very popular. As one of my mentors has said in the past, bright lights attract a lot of bugs. That was certainly true of Jesus Christ. There were at least three different groups of people in this particular crowd. 
There were the apostles, of course, as verse 17 says, and he descended with them. The them there in verse 17 is the apostles, those whom he had chosen, those whom he had equipped, those whom he had named, as verse 13 tells us. That's who they were. Jesus had demonstrated his divine authority that he is God in the flesh and that he can choose out from the followers that were coming about him and he sets them apart and he equips them and names them as his apostles. That's, that's one group in this crowd. But second, there's also, notice, a great multitude of his disciples, it says in verse 17. Who were they? Well, well, they were those who usually were in the crowd when Jesus was ministering. They were the, the Jesus groupies, if you will. These were the regular attenders. Certainly not all of them were actually believers unto salvation. Not all of them believed by faith in Jesus Christ. They were, like John 2 says, believing in Jesus, but not believing unto salvation. And so Jesus, like John 2 says, wasn't believing in them. They were believing unbelievers, if you will. We could probably say they were the very few who got saved, some of them. These were followers of Jesus out of curiosity because Jesus was meeting their physical needs. They were like the crowd in John 6 after Jesus had fed the 5,000 the next morning wants to go see Him and find Him in Capernaum. And all they want him to do is to miraculously make them a meal for the morning. So this group would have been the varying degrees of people with varying understandings about who Jesus was. Some would have been intent about hearing Jesus. They really wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Others just wanted what they could get from Jesus. Some physical need that he might meet. That's the group of disciples. And then there's a third group you notice in verse 17, a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. If there's a crowd, something must be happening, so let's go and see it. That's this kind of people. There's a crowd going on. Who is this? These are the curious what I like to call the tire kickers in evangelicalism. They come and kick the tires, check it out, see what's happening, see what's going on. Something must be happening if there's people there. No commitment at all to Jesus Christ. And within that group would have been the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes who hounded Jesus' heels. Even many Gentiles would come in that way because it says they are from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon was the southern end of Syria, the Gentile regions in the north. And so many are coming to see, and they're traveling a great distance to come and to hear Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had authority. Jesus had authority. This is what Luke reiterates even here. Luke has talked about all of these things that we see happening here in verses 18 and 19, and yet Luke is reiterating it again just to help us understand. Don't forget, Jesus has divine authority. Jesus has exercised His authority in what He said, right? People came to hear Him. What Jesus says is authoritative. People want to hear what He says. They want to hear what He might say. Why? Because 
he made authoritative declarations about truth. He said to the Pharisees from time to time, you have heard it said, or to the people, you have heard it said, and he quotes what is the traditions of men about adultery and about murder. And Jesus says, but I say to you, don't even look upon a woman with lust. Jesus spoke with authority. And so they wanted to hear him. The crowds, after hearing Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, Mount in Matthew's Gospel. It says in Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29, they were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was different. He wasn't like those that that taught them every week in the synagogue, quoting themselves and quoting the partners that they hung around with. Jesus wasn't like them. He wasn't like those we hear today oftentimes who will stand up with God's Word and say, well, I think so. I think this is true. Or or uh, this might be valid as if there are other options somewhere out there in the world. No, Jesus declared truth with authority. He was declarative, not suggestive. They never heard a man speak like Jesus spoke. He was declaring the good news of salvation as the gift of God through repentance of sin. When you repented of your sin, your sins would be then forgiven and you would be declared not guilty before God. That's not what the scribes taught. All the scribes said was, follow the traditions, do the religious activities, keep the law of Moses to the T, do everything that we say to you to do. But Jesus taught the truth. And His message was verified by the miracles that He did. And so everywhere Jesus went, His message was that God would forgive those who were spiritually destitute. He would free those held captive by sin. If if they would just turn from their sin and embrace Him by faith, they would have their sins forgiven. Salvation would come to all who believed. All who embraced Him as Lord and Savior. And so Luke wants to reiterate this, and he says they they were coming to hear him, but they also came, notice, to see his authority by what he did. He says, and they he healed their diseases, verse 18. He wasn't like the modern charlatans today that you watch on YouTube or TV or some other fruitless activity like that who claim to have the power to heal. They're just fakes. They're just, they're just charlatans. It's fakery. It's not real. Jesus actually cured all the people. You notice that in verse 19? And all the multitude were trying to touch Him for His power was coming from Him and healing them all. They weren't picking and choosing out of the crowd. The the apostles and those who actually believed on Jesus weren't disseminated into the crowd with little microphones in their ears trying to decide who to bring to the stage so they can put on the show and fake some activity. No, Jesus was healing them all. And finally, they came to see Jesus because He had authority over the spiritual realm. Verse 18 says, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. 
By the way, by the way, the original grammar here in verse 18 indicates that it wasn't just once that he did that, but rather that it was an ongoing occurrence. It was an ongoing occurrence. He had been freeing people from demonic slavery again and again and again and again and again. The people were experiencing that over and over and over again as they watched Jesus. Why do I emphasize that? Just simply to say this, there's no mistake here as to who Jesus is. There's no mistake here in Luke chapter 6 as to Jesus Christ and who He is. His authority is an overarching, exhaustive authority, covers everything in all of life, no matter what it is. He spoke with authority. He healed every kind of disease with divine authority. And the demonic world does what He commands. Jesus is authoritative in the ultimate sense. Why? Because He's God. Now there's an implication in understanding that because that tells us That tells us as we begin, just in verse 17 through 19, these truths concerning Jesus Christ. First is this, the authority of Jesus Christ that has been heard and has been seen clearly shows that He is God in the flesh. No one could do what He was doing. This is God among us. No one else could do what Jesus did. That's the first thing implicationally from this text. Secondly, being God, being who He is, the way that Jesus exercises His authority as God shows us clearly that God is a compassionate God. I hear so many people say today and ask the silly question, well, if God is such a God of love, then why does bad things happen in the world? Bad things don't happen because God is doing them. Bad things happen because man is bad. God is a compassionate God. You say, how so? Because Jesus, being God, could have done any kind of miracle in the presence of the people. He didn't have to do these kinds of miracles, but these are the ones He did. He could have built houses from nothing. Oh, you need a home? Home. There it is. He didn't do that. Could have. He spoke creation from nothing. He didn't do that. He could have changed the weather cycle so that the earth grew perfect crops all the time. He could have done that. But He didn't. He could have done any number of miracles in front of the people, but what He did was to bring relief to suffering sinners. Jesus was moved with compassion for sinful people, and He healed their sick, He made the blind see, He made the lame walk, and He freed those captive to demonic powers as an authentication of the reality that He was able and could forgive your sin. That was the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was a ministry of compassion. Which is in stark contrast to the ministry of the religion of human achievement. The religion of human achievement has no compassion. The scribes and the Pharisees looked to accuse Jesus 
that he was doing something wrong simply because he gave a man new legs to walk. But he did it on the Sabbath. He fully restored a withered hand. They were angry at that because he did it on the Sabbath. The religion of human achievement was pointing at Jesus with no compassion in its heart for his act of compassion upon someone. They had more compassion for their stable animals than they did for other human beings. He didn't want to follow their traditions, and to them he was a violator of the law. No compassion. There is no compassion in the religion of human achievement. Why? Because it costs too much personally to show compassion to somebody else. That costs me something. Personal sacrifice is too much to ask in the religion of human achievement. Me give you something? No way. I'm not doing that. If it it doesn't boost me in any kind of way, I'm not even going to seem as if I'm a giving person if I can't boast about it in my own personal achievement column. But Jesus' ministry was one of compassion, one of personal sacrifice. Power was coming from him and healing them all. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Yes, 2,000 plus years have passed in the historical record, but nothing has changed about Jesus Christ. The most compassionate thing that Jesus ever did was go to the cross. most compassionate thing that Jesus Christ ever accomplished by way of His authenticating who He is was to die a sinner's death so that all who would believe could live without being judged by Him. And so right here, just in the beginning, we get a glimpse of the joy that all who believe in Him have when we truly know God the joy we will experience fully when we are with God in eternal glory. There will be no disease, no want, no death, no sin. Jesus Christ vanquishes it all. And Satan and all who reject Jesus Christ are permanently in hell forever. They're done. Now you have to have that in your mind because this is the backdrop on which Jesus preaches this sermon. This is the very backdrop on which Jesus places the brightest diamond that we've ever heard. The great wisdom from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself about what it means to be a Christian. I don't want us to miss this. Remember Luke chapter 6, verse 19. There is not one person in this audience that has come to hear Him and come to see Him, not one person that is suffering from a disease, not one person that is suffering from a physical ailment. There isn't one person left in the crowd who has a demon possessing them. Jesus has removed every hindrance to His message. Every physical hindrance is gone. Everyone is well Everyone has no physical ailments. There are no demons hanging around inside people causing them to do things they don't want to do. No circumstance can be used as an excuse to reject Jesus Christ. Now 
In fact, just listen to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 25. This is just prior to the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5. Jesus is going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea from beyond the Jordan. This is the crowd, and Jesus has had compassion on them. He has set the stage for their ears to be able to hear the message. No wonder... He says in verse 27, I say to you who hear. He doesn't mean you've heard the noise. He means you're hearing it internally in your heart. This is the scene. Jesus is clearly divine. He clearly has proven that. He clearly deserves to be worshipped. He clearly deserves to be obeyed. And he says, notice... Verses 20 to 22, and turning his gaze to his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That is a description of the heart of a Christian. The religion of human achievement doesn't say that. The religion of human achievement says, blessed are everyone who does all they can do to achieve for themselves. Blessed are those who rise to the top. Blessed are those who have all they can get. Blessed are those who follow to the letter the Mosaic law and the traditions of men. But Jesus says authoritatively, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the mournful, the hated. Seems rather oxymoronic, doesn't it? Can this be what it seems to be saying? Is it saying what it seems to be saying? Because at the outset, it seems rather to not necessarily be about the heart of somebody, but about ethics, human ethics. It seems to be about personal morality. In other words, is is Jesus talking about the ethical path to real happiness in life? I mean, is that what He means? This is the moral way to carry yourself in order for you to be happy in life? Well, that's how many a misguided person sees it. That this is just a moral lesson. Just like they look at Matthew 5 through 7. This is just a moral lesson. These are moral lessons for life. Does it have ethics? Yes, because the Christian life is lived in an ethical way. But this isn't words from Jesus on how to be happy in life. 
This isn't words about how to achieve your happiness as a Christian. These are authoritative words from Jesus that declare the truth about one's life who is declared by God as blessed because they rely not on human achievement, but rather on divine achievement, which only comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is speaking of the blessedness of the children of the kingdom of God. This is a declaration about who they are, since they are blessed with all the blessings of the gospel. Since they are blessed as kingdom citizens, they have soul satisfaction, they have true joy and great reward. So this is... Like Psalm 1, this is why I read Psalm 1 to us this morning. Begins the same way. That simple word, blessed. Blessed. From the human perspective, the words of Jesus don't make sense. It seems foolish for us to think that poverty and hunger, being mournful and hated, would bring about blessing. Seems rather silly. Seems silly that to think that riches and fatness and laughing and being like liked by all the world around us would bring a curse upon one's life, and yet that's what it seems to be saying in verses twenty-four through twenty-six. Is that what he's saying? Because if that is what he is saying, then the way mankind thinks is completely backwards. Is it any wonder that the Jewish religious leaders rejected Christ? Is it any wonder? The religion of human achievement doesn't give up anything. It strives simply to get. And so these are shocking words. Blessed are you who are poor? Really? What does this mean? Some of you have studied the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. You know the word in the original language, makarios. That's the word for blessed. It really means in a simple sense, happy. Happy. But not happy because of circumstance. Happy as being a disposition of your soul in spite of circumstance. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, well, I wish you to be blessed. I wish you to be blessed. He he isn't here giving a public prayer of blessing. Like he's saying, blessings, oh God, to these people. He's not doing that. No, what Jesus is doing is he's making a definely authoritative statement of fact. This is fact. These are divine declarations according to God's authoritative judgment concerning the attitude of the heart. That's why you know them as beatitudes. This is attitudes of the heart. These are beatitudes, and there are four blessings pronounced about those who are in right standing before God. 
and there are four curses or four woes on those who are not in right standing before God. In other words, here is the heart of a child of God in the blessings, and here is the heart of a child of Satan in the curses. You say, really? Why do you say Satan? I don't see the word Satan here. Well, because if you're not of the family of God, then you are of the family of the devil. There are no middle ground families. There are only two options. If you have not been rescued from the domain of darkness by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that His righteousness is counted to your account through repentance and faith in Him by which you are declared not guilty before a holy God, then you are still in the domain of darkness and you are on the road to hell. There is no neutral zone. So what is the first heart attitude then that is pronounced about those who are part of the family of God. Verse 20 says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the tokos. That's the original word, tokos. It's the idea of cringing. It's the idea of crouching like a beggar. That's the idea. It's the imagery. It's not, that's not what we're talking about here in a physical sense, but, but that's the idea. It's crouching like a beggar. So it actually has a stronger connotation here than we might understand when we hear the word poor. Because when we hear the word poor, we usually think of economics. Poor can mean someone with less than others. Or or someone who has very little by way of material goods. But the word used here has, has a, a far deeper connotation than that because the word here means someone who is completely and utterly bankrupt. That's the idea. Completely bankrupt. Now bankrupt in our society doesn't necessarily mean you don't have things because we've defined it as you just can't pay your bills so you file chapter whatever and you go bankrupt. They don't take everything. But that's what bankrupt really means. Totally destitute of everything. Nothing to your name. But remember, Christ is not speaking about that which is physical. He is speaking of the condition of the soul before God. You say, why do we know this? Or how do we know this? Because physical and material poorness is not a blessing. That's why the righteous man in Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, asked God to keep him from poverty. Why? So that he would not be tempted to steal and thereby bring discredit upon the name of the Lord. That's material reality. So Jesus isn't teaching that those who are materially poor are the ones who are blessed. That would be on the physical realm, as if to say, get rid of all your earthly goods and you'll surely find blessing from God. Wouldn't that seem to go right into the hands of the religion of human achievement? Do it and you're in? No. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, in Matthew's account... Matthew chapter 5, it's the same message, and yet it says this, Blessed are the poor, what? In spirit. 
who are in spirit. In other words, those who understand their spiritual bankruptcy before God. They're the blessed ones. Those who realize they are spiritually dead. They are totally destitute spiritually before God. That they could never attain righteousness in and of themselves in any kind of way. Regardless of how much or how little they may have materially in the world. You see, you can have all the material gifts of the world and be poor in spirit. And you can have nothing in the world and be prideful in spirit. Those who are bankrupt of the spiritual resources needing to be in the presence of God, it's those who know that righteousness cannot be attained through human effort. You say, is this the message of Jesus throughout His ministry? Yes. In fact, just for a second, just really quickly, I'm tempted to go here, and I think we have to. Luke chapter 14. Because he, he gets pretty serious in his defining of discipleship with these people who are following him. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, the great multitudes are going along with him. And he turns and says to them, if anyone comes to me. Now that, he's not saying comes to me in the sense that, hey, you came to hear me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you, you want to be a follower of me. You, you come to me. You, you want to be part of me. You want to be in this family. You, you think you can come to me. Then here it is. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, his own mother, his own wife, and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's a, a definitive demarcation line. Your love for other things better be less than what your love is for Christ. You better have that devotion for Christ that's the highest order in your own heart because if that isn't the case, you can't be a disciple of Christ. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's the reality of this, the death, right? Cross, the cross is that symbol of death. You don't carry this reality of dying to self all the time. You can't be a disciple of Christ. Well, no one in the, divine, in the religion of human achievement dies to self. It's all about self. And he gives the example, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost? See if he has enough to complete it. It's all about the cost. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, ah, this man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Look at that guy. He, he went to Jesus, but, he, but he, he can't keep up with the standard standards to be perfect. And nobody's perfect. Look at him. Ha ha. We'll just all laugh at him and ridicule him. What about a king who sets out to meet another king in battle, not first sit down and take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one against him with 20,000? Or else while he's still the others far away, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. He, he goes and he says, hey, listen, I don't have what it takes. Let me go make it right. And Jesus sums it all up. So therefore, verse 33 of Luke 14, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Is he talking about the material possessions of the world? Well, certainly not. Otherwise, salvation would be according to our own works, our own human achievement. We just get rid of our stuff and, hey, we're in. No, he's talking about the heart. You can't give up and hold on to your own resources thinking that it's you that does it. Everything that's yours. You have to come to him like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, probably a very wealthy guy. 
just like Matthew, a wealthy tax collector. They weren't many poor tax collectors materially, and yet the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, unwilling even to raise his eyes to heaven, but is weeping and beating his chest, asking God, just be merciful to me, the sinner. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But to this one I will look, God speaking to the nation of Israel. Here's to the one I look to. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. What is Jesus saying here right at the beginning? Right, He's saying, listen, this pronouncement of blessing is upon those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. The kind of attitude of the heart when it's spiritually bankrupt, it's impossible for those in the religion of human achievement to have that. Why? Because you see yourself as too spiritually fine. You're already okay. It's your own efforts, your own good works. It got you there. You don't, you're not spiritually bankrupt. You are, in the words of many, even materially today, you are a self-made person. Religious practices have earned you a place in the kingdom of God in your mind. But Jesus is saying, no, no, it's the exact opposite of what you keep hearing people, what you keep hearing from the Pharisees and from the scribes is works, works, works. What I'm telling you is the exact opposite. Listen, these words would have shocked these people to the core. Why? Because the promise of the spiritually bankrupt is that of theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you see that there? Blessed is the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Ooh, not You mean not the others? No, not the others. See, here's the principle. Empty hearts, God fills. Bankrupt hearts, God fills. Those that are filled with self, those that are filled with their own claims of righteousness, God cannot fill. Why? Because they're filled with self. So it's true. Kingdom of God is for the spiritually bankrupt in heart. It's for them and them alone. There's another reason that makes universal salvation utterly impossible. God's no way can save everybody and will not save everybody. Why? Because not everybody is bankrupt of heart. You cannot come to God unless you are bankrupt in your heart. There is no other way. There is no other way. You cannot come to Christ any other way. Why? Because the kingdom of God is for spiritually bankrupt hearts. He's the king of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom. And so when it says here that yours is the kingdom of God, the implication is that Jesus is yours. Why? Because you do not have a kingdom without a king. Without a king, there is no kingdom. And so if you have Christ, you have the kingdom. 
And that is both a here and now reality and it is a future reality all the way unto eternity. That is why the contrast is so vivid. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich. That's the direct contrast to the poor. For you are receiving your comfort in full. Here and now, this is it. Here's those who are rich, both rich in their own heart saying, hey, I can do it on my own. Guess what he's saying? You have your reward Get all you can now because this is it. And so it's the poor of spirit who cry out to the king. Good news is it's impossible for the king to leave them crying. He comes and he fills their hearts to the full. And the irony is they go from poor to rich in Christ. They go from bankruptcy before God to rich in Christ. We are given grace. We are given pardon. We are given adoption. We are given sanctification. We are given Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, we have to understand something as Christians. It's not as if having the kingdom means we don't sin. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And yet, the attitude of poor, even though it describes us, it doesn't necessarily eliminate the reality, this side of heaven, of sin. Why? Because we're still sojourners on the earth. And even though we are saved, even though we are kingdom citizens, we still sin. And as we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And so we receive grace upon grace upon grace. So we... We keep that beatitude poor as we live here knowing knowing that we are secure in and with the King in His kingdom. We are secure with the King in His kingdom. In fact, just listen to what James said. James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. James 2, verse 5. God chose the poor. Not, not, not materially poor, the, the, the bankrupt of heart, the, the spiritually poor, those who know they cannot earn it. He chose those to be rich in faith. Trust in God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 says. Rich in faith. And therefore, by that faith, we're heirs of the kingdom which He promised to us who love Jesus Christ. You see, it's better to be poor in spirit and have the kingdom of God than to be rich in spirit and miss it altogether. together. 
We sit here this morning, we say, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Well, at the very least, a Christian is poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. That's just the first. I mean, we barely got off the starting blocks. That's just the first one. And he's going to elaborate on this as we've read in verse 20 through 49 what it looks like in our life as we live out our Christianity. Oh, I think we're going to be shocked. I think it's going to shock us how different it is than what we might think. And we'll save that for next time. Come tonight, by the way. Come tonight as we get into Galatians. We're going to get a taste in some ways tonight in Galatians chapter 5 of what it means as a Christian to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Be here tonight, 6 o'clock. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Thank You for our time here, even this morning. Lord, these are heavy, heavy words. Crushing because there are areas in all of our lives whereby we convinced ourselves that our own achievement is what is really earning us your love, your care, your concern, ultimately your salvation. And we know there is no way for us to do that. Lord, forgive us for thinking like that, even in the subtlest of ways. Forgive us for stripping from you the very glory and honor you deserve and taking it to ourselves. Foolishly raising ourselves up as if we're something when we're nothing. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to the reality of our condition before you. We are bankrupt. Without Christ, we are nothing and we ought to realize that. Father, those who do not know you this morning, who sit here this day and hear these words, may they understand they are lost, dead, hell-bound. Open their eyes to see their sin that they might turn to you, realizing their poorness, that they might know Christ and know real riches. The Lord will thank you for it all. Give you all the glory. We deserve none. Thankful just to be part of your family. Lord, it is in these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.